Good morning, ladies. Let's pray as we begin. Gracious God, we began this study and this book with the words, The Lord has spoken. And you have indeed spoken in powerful ways about the God that you are, one who is mighty to save, and in ways we just never would have expected. And God, as we come to the end of our study here and read the last words of this book, your holy word inspired by your spirit to Isaiah, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. Because in the end, God, that's the only thing that matters is your truth. That is what will stand, and that is what we want to live our lives into, God. So help us, Lord. Come in power through your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, and be with us, Lord that we might know you more and walk in your ways. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we did it. 60, I know, don't you feel like we should give us a round of applause? 66 chapters. 66 chapters. 24 lessons, 28 weeks. Ladies, we have put in a lot of hard work. We've covered a lot of material. Material. Hopefully, we have learned a lot. But I kind of feel like I have just scratched the surface of Isaiah. I feel like, oh, now I know what's sort of going on. And feel like I could then just dive in deeper. But we have reached the end. So I have a question as we start off. What kind of book reader are you? When you pick up a new book, particularly a work of fiction, do you read it cover to cover, start in the beginning, don't skip a page, go all the way to the end? Are you one of those readers who opens to the last page of the book or the last chapter and reads to find out what happens and then starts the book? Do we have any of those in here? (laughs) No, there's no judgment here. You know, some people just need to have that security that they know where things are going. I'm a rule follower, and I figure the author wrote this book in a particular way, so I will follow it. I will not bend from that. Well, last week, we ended our section um, with these words. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from our eyes. From my eyes, God speaking. And this invites the transition into our next section, which is, friends, the ultimate spoiler. Isaiah 25, 17 through 25, tells us the end of the story. We're getting to read the last page of the book before we finished the book, when we're in the middle of the book. The story which began within the beginning, God created ends the story with God creating anew. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. It's a beautiful continuity. 
And this is a big deal, friends, because this is not just any story. This isn't just a fairy tale or a work of fiction. This is the story of all that is and will be. And we get to know how it ends. So Isaiah begins in verse 17, For behold, I created new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And there is this continuity that will be with what has been, and yet God will create something that will be a completely new expression of that reality. So our life here matters on earth. But it will be amplified and recreated in a way that we just cannot understand. And Isaiah begins to unpack what this new will look like. And he begins with Jerusalem. Not surprising for Isaiah. In the place that Jerusalem holds this importance. It's at the center, right? And this new city of Jerusalem will be everything that the old city failed to be. It'll be a place of joy. That God rejoices in. And where God finds gladness in his people. And I don't know if you noticed in this section, but there are a lot of negatives in this new heaven. But that's a positive. The negatives are a positive. Okay? Follow me here. There's no more tears. There's no more weeping. No more life cut short. No more destruction. No more working hard without reaping the benefits of this work. Revelation 21, if you have some time to spend in that chapter, um, picks up this very theme. I mean, you can tell that God's word is inspired when you see this in Isaiah. And then Revelation has the same vision. And I want to read it in the message. I love how the message put it. I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone. Crying gone. Pain, gone. All the first order of things, gone. The enthroned continued, look, I am making everything new. Gone. Gone are the things that weigh our souls down in this life with grief and longing and heartache and suffering. It's gone. We get this picture, and this section about life and longevity was a little confusing to me, and there's a whole discussion we can have about why he says people will live to be 100, because you're like, aren't we just going to live forever? Of what's going on here, it is poetic, so um, I can talk to you about what the commentary said. But, but the picture is of longevity and durability, right? As our days are compared to that of trees now and not grass. Do you remember the comparison that humans are to grass in Isaiah 46? All flesh is grass, and it's beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. 
Surely the people are grass. We're not grass any longer. We are trees. Established, durable. And then we have this picture of fellowship and communion with God in verse 24. Where we don't even need to speak. And God already answers us. In contrast to the places where we cry out and feel like he's been silent, God says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Can you imagine that kind of communion with God? So intimate, so unbroken by our sin. Because all has been made new, has been made right in the way we were meant to commune with God. I imagine this is what it was like in the garden. Several times a week, I take Lily Joy up these flight of stairs in the church where she goes to preschool. And almost every time on the landing between the second and the third floor, she points to it and she says, The lion and the sheep, Mommy. The lion and the sheep. It's this banner hanging there with a lion and a lamb. She calls it the sheep, lying next to each other. Almost every time, three times a week since September. Lion and the sheep. Lion and the sheep. Yep, it's the lion and the sheep. She has no idea that this actually would not happen in the natural world. She's just naming animals. The lion in the natural world would look at that lamb and think dinner and make its move, right? But here in Isaiah, we get this beautiful picture and vision of peace unlike we have ever seen. A reordering of the natural order. This isn't just the absence of conflict. This is the unification of what was formerly divided. This is a completely new way of existing. Predator and prey eating side by side. The wolf and the lamb beside the sheep, as Lily Joy would say. And then it has this uh, reference to a serpent eating the dust. The serpent is put in its place. This is an allusion to Genesis 3. The fullness of what it means We can unpack in another discussion as well. I'm trying to get through these verses. There's so much here. But the serpent is put in its place. Finally, at the end of verse 25, there's these words. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Everything harmful will be banished. If I'm being honest, I wish Isaiah had stopped here. Chapter 65, verse 25. Wouldn't that have been a lovely ending to this book? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Did anyone feel that way? (laughs) Like, oh, let's close the book. This was an awesome place to end. Peace pervading all of life, an entirely new order of things, or perhaps a restoration of the original order before the fall. No tears, 
no futile efforts. I don't know about you, but that whole piece about work and like reaping the benefits of it, I'm imagining weeds are not a part of the new order as a gardener. I don't know if there's any gardeners out there that would say amen. Right? Your work is just this abundant fruitfulness. No more loss. But Isaiah keeps going for one more chapter. And we read in the beginning of 66, verse 2, about a God, the God who looks for the humble and contrite in spirit, for the one who trembles at his word. And this is in comparison, again, to those whom God sees engage in empty religion, acts of sacrifice and worship that are simple pretense, people performing these acts without a heart that's bent towards God because that's what matters in the end, right? What does God point to? Humility, contrition, trembling at his word. But that is not in the heart of these people. And so Isaiah, as he has numerous times in this book, points to the appearance of religious worship, which in fact has is nothing but empty ritualism at best, and at worst is an attempt to manipulate God while maintaining your own way. This passage should make us tremble. There's a lot that could be said on this, but I'm going to keep going. In verse 5, the focus shifts as God turns to speak to the remnant. Those, it says, who hear his Hear the word of the Lord and tremble at his word. Are you getting a picture of how important his word is? To take him at his word, to trust his word, which is truth. Because in the end, it doesn't matter what our perception of truth is, what we believe is true or not. The truth will stand. And it is God's truth that will stand in the end. And so we simply pray, Lord God, please help me know your truth, your way in this world. How am I supposed to see life in the way that I behave and act and love? In verse 6, there's a call to make some noise, right? Uproar from the city as God makes things right. Renders recompense to his enemies. He will vindicate those who tremble at his word and in doing so are mocked by the arrogant false worshipers. Then Isaiah turns to this image of uh, this fruitful mother Zion who gives birth to nations. And I don't actually fully understand this section of giving birth before pain happens, um, though it sounds like a wonderful way to have a baby. My experience four times was not like that. Um, I don't fully understand this section of what he's talking about, that a a nation will come forth before she's even in labor. But I loved this verse. This felt like a promise to me. Do I bring a mother? It's verse um, 66.9. Do I bring a mother to the point of birth and not let her deliver? God will fulfill what he has started. 
hear that, God will fulfill what he has started in your life and in this world. He is not sitting back silent as much as those accusations were lobbed against him in Isaiah, doing nothing, not hearing. Where are you? He will do what he has promised. Do I bring a mother to the point of birth and not let her deliver? And then again, God promises comfort to his people in Isaiah 66, 13. The same comfort promised in 41, this verse that we know so well. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's repeated three times here as God speaks again to this vision of peace and joy and the overflowing blessing of God that will pour out from Jerusalem. But at the end of verse 14, Isaiah shifts again to this sobering word as he speaks of the glory of God and judgment again. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. And in the rest of the chapter here, as Isaiah closes out his book, this is where he stays with this interplay of these twin themes that we've become accustomed to in Isaiah, hope of redemption and judgment. We cannot escape these. I said to Donna and Carmen this morning, I was like, it's judgment to the bitter end in this book. Doesn't it feel that way? Just We could not get away from it. But we can't actually get away from it. Donna said in our small group last week, friends, they're two sides of the same coin. They just are. God will not force anyone into his saving work. Barry G. Webb stated so well. Donna, shout out to Barry. God will give us what we choose and be glorified as much by his righteous judgment as by his saving grace. God will give us what we choose and be glorified as much by his righteous judgment as by his saving grace. In the end, there will be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth that God creates and bring about, but he will not force anyone into it. If Isaiah highlights anything at the end, it's this, the choice is ours and there is a choice, there is a decision. And so Isaiah, in verses 18 through 23, hits this note again of God's gracious redemption that will include all nations, right, who will come to see the glory of God and will worship. But then, as a reminder, he ends on this very hard, sobering note in verse 24. Of those who choose rebellion, experiencing the everlasting consequence of their choice. It was a hard verse to end on. And it seems harsh, but Isaiah, neither Isaiah nor God are being harsh. They simply feel the weight of what is to come. 
They feel the weight of what is to come, the end of the story. God does not want any to perish. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish. Listen to this. But all to change their hearts and lives. We have no idea how unbelievably patient God has been with us. We've seen it throughout the book of Isaiah. We see it in the whole of the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We feel it in our lives, don't we? Religious people who time and time again choose their own way, and yet God continues to seek after us. Isaiah 65, 1 through 2, which we read last week, says this, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. This is in response to, you've been silent, God. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name, I spread out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. If that doesn't sum up human history, God's history and our history, here I am. I spread out my hands all the day long. God doesn't want any to perish. We see that as he spread out his hands on the cross in this ultimate act of love and gracious salvation to bring back those whom he loved to himself. But here's the thing, friend. Donna, friends, Donna said something last week that really stuck with me in commenting on these verses. She said, God's arms are open but they will not remain open forever. Even as we yearn for a new heaven and a new earth, for this existence of pain and death and grief where it's gone, I mean, how many of you just delighted in that first, the the, the last um, part of Isaiah 65? And if you sat in um, Revelation 21, oh my God, that just didn't... Fill our souls with hope for what is to come. But when that happens, friends, it also means that the time to repent and be saved has come to an end. In Isaiah 64, 1, Isaiah cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But to call on God to rend the heavens and come down is to invite the day of God's judgment as well as the day of his salvation. We long for and we pray. We just sung, come, Lord Jesus, come. But when Christ comes again, as we saw in this vivid picture of Isaiah 63 that Bev talked on a few weeks ago, when Christ comes this time, he comes as warrior and judge. And it will be done. The time for repentance For choosing his way over ours will be over. 
And so over and over and over again, Isaiah speaks of this need for repentance, for humility, contrition, for submitting yourself to God, choosing his way over your own. Because he knows the story will eventually end. New heaven, new earth will be full redemption and full judgment. That day will come. Deep breath. It's a weighty end. It's sobering. A few things to note as we end here. First, the book of Isaiah has been all about promises. God's promise to redeem God's promises to people in exile due to their rebellion. God's promises to redeem. God's promises to redeem through this surprising way of his suffering servant. God's promise to be the one who is mighty, who is able, who is not powerless or not listening, but is able, mighty to save. That memory verse card, he is mighty to save, might just be my favorite one. He does hear us. He seeks to comfort and console. He will one day bring about a glorious new existence where there is no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss. Where peace, I mean, just imagine, peace flows freely. Just pervades life. But whether we participate in these promises is entirely up to us. We make a choice for rebellion or for humble repentance and a willingness to walk in his way. And as I sat with this, it really brought up for me um, in a really powerful way, in a convicting way, um, of the importance of intercessory prayer and of telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. I've taken evangelism far too lightly. Because I love to dig in and talk to Christians about like the deep things. Like that's, that is discipleship and formation is my call. But this passage, I mean, that image at the end of Isaiah verse 24 of those of us who live in this new existence looking over those who suffer in eternal fire, it's disturbing. This should move us to ask, who do I know that needs to hear of the gracious love of our God? And not in a, um, by the way, you may be interested. This is spiritual life and death. There's weight to it. All of us know people that we love who don't know Jesus. And this image that Isaiah ends on just pulled from me the utter importance of sharing what we have and what we know and not in a timid way. I don't know what that means. I'd love to talk to people about it. But this is our role, right? This is where Israel failed. They were called to be a blessing to the nation so that all would come to them. That's our call as the church, as God's people. And so... Verse 24 of Isaiah 66, if nothing else, 
is an image I will hold in my head when I feel timid about sharing Jesus with another person. And not forcefully, you all know, to share of his goodness and grace. Because people are hungry for it, really. Second, we're all aware that the full effects of human choice are not experienced in this life, right? People get away with things. Justice is not fully served here. All the evil done here is not punished here. Likewise, all the good that is done is not rewarded here. But one day it will be. The fullness of what God is doing and the new things that he's bringing about and in terms of the justice that will be accomplished will occur on the other side of Christ's coming. So what you see around you in life, the suffering and oppression, and you wonder, where is the justice? Or maybe it's what you experience in your day-to-day life, your acts of faithfulness and goodness, and you feel like no one sees it. God sees it, friends. God sees it. He sees it all. And all will be taken into account on that final day. I hope that is an encouragement. Right? God will not leave any loose strings untied. In terms of his justice. In terms of his blessing on your life that you are doing good work, even though no one sees it. He sees it. Last, we'll begin, or we'll end where we began this morning. We know the end of the story. We may not know the fullness of our middle, right? There's so much we do not understand about our lives. There is confusion in the middle, but we know the end. And it is a beautiful ending for those who are humble and contrite in heart and tremble at God's word. That phrase feels like something I'm going to... That was the other verse, and I might even make one, bring it next week, of one that I want to hold is, that's my prayer, Lord. Make me humble and contrite in spirit and help me tremble at your word. We have a beautiful ending for those who walk in that way. Revelation 21 After God speaks of the new heaven and the new earth where death and tears and pain is gone, he says, behold, I am making all things new. And then it continues. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm actually going to read a little bit more because it was read by Donna and it's beautiful. And he said to me, it is done. One day it is done. It will be done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. That's uh, Revelation 21, verse 6. We can trust in his word. It is true. And so despite where we are in the middle, we know what the end of the story will be. Us and God, bride and bridegroom, tears gone. Death, gone. Pain, gone. Suffering, gone. Thirst, thirst, gone. Can you imagine every single longing in your soul met? 
And so, in the words of our verse for this week, I want to end with the message translation of 6518. Look ahead, friends, with joy. Anticipate what he is creating. Let's pray. God, we have seen more deeply in fullness your heart for your people, for all people, your longing for us to walk in your ways so we might experience true life. And so God, I pray that we could hold the tension of the world we live in and the hope of the world, the new heaven and the new earth to come, and not just not just get to a place where we dream about what's to come, but we seek to live a life, Lord, that lives into that joy that seeks for you to fill our thirst now. God, help make us a people who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray.